Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Football Gentron. My name is Adam and today I am joined by the usual suspects, Anmen and Chadens, but we have something a little special planned for you today. A little Christmas gift you might call it. Enjoy. Today with us we have the Baron of Braces, the Armenian Assassin, the Crossword King, Turnpike Thierry Henry, the number one draft pick from New Jersey, the president of DC, Eski Sports Own, one Sultani, please, your MLS Cup MVP's favorite MLS Cup MVP, Aleko Eskandarian. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. What an intro. I, I can honestly say I've never received an intro like that in my life. So thank you. I feel very, very welcome. You can have it. You can record it. Take it with you. <laughs> Play it to your friends. Tell them all about it. Tell them. See, I got compared to Thierry Henry. <laughs> you are. You are. You to to me to me to us. You are. You are the Turnpike Thierry Henry. That's. <laughs> so how are you doing today? I appreciate it. Oh, well, it's good to have you. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We know you're very busy. Uh, we know you just announced the uh the jersey auction that you're going to be doing for charity thank you for doing that thank you for our, all the initiatives that you've taken uh over the past few months with everything going on in Hayastan and in Artsakh uh we really appreciate you using your platform and your voice uh to do essentially everything you can possibly do to help <sighs> all right so let's get right into it Aleko you're an Armenian, you're a diasporan Armenian, and you grew up in New Jersey. What was that like? Uh, um, it was, you know, it was amazing. I love, I have so much pride uh, of being from Jersey and growing up there and uh, kind of learning, you know, so much of, of who I am. Like, my identity definitely was blossomed in in jersey um i think as i've gotten older and i look back you start to like try to make sense of certain things and and once you meet people from from other places you're like oh man maybe that wasn't normal or um you know you realize in other places it's it's not quite the same uh experience but for me i loved it because new jersey is such a hotbed of different cultures and uh obviously being armenian my parents are Persian Armenian, both of them uh, born in Tehran. Um, you know, my, my my parents speak with an accent. Uh, I spoke with an accent when, when I was growing up. I went to Hovnanyan Bajaran for school for 10 years from, from nursery when I was three years old until I graduated eighth grade at age 13. So I, <laughs> Armenians like grew up in a bubble, in a bubble, right? And and um, I loved it in that I got a unique experience of being, you know, around Armenians, going to an Armenian school, learning Armenian. Um, and it was a very small school. I only had, I think, my graduating class had eight kids in the entire grade, right? Because there's not that many Armenians in New Jersey. There just aren't. So um, we had classes in trailer. Like it was, it was a unique, unique experience. But I had a life outside of that where I was playing football, I was playing soccer, and, um, you know, I had all my Odar friends as well, you know, the kids that I grew up playing with, 
And on my club teams in Jersey, you had all different kinds of ethnicities, Jamaicans, Colombians, Peruvians, Italians, whatever it was, right? Like all, all sorts of different um, backgrounds and ethnicities. So it, at a very young age, it almost became my role to like teach people about who I am because obviously I have a bit of a unique name. So whenever people try to say my name, they're like, what are you, right? Like it was kind of like a puzzle <laughs> that no one can figure out. Like, wait, what are you, bro? Like, uh, you know, I've never heard that name before. So um, from a young age, I took it on as a duty to just say I'm, I'm Armenian and this is uh, our history and our background, our traditions and all that stuff. So um, I embraced that role and I, I became really proud. Even even by my like early teens, I was like really proud of like, man, I've, I've taught so many people about what Armenia is and, and what Armenians are. Um, and yeah, it was, I, I loved it. Um, looking back, there were, there were certainly some moments that were interesting where you like, you know, try to figure out, are you a minority? Are you, are you not like, <laughs> like, do, do I belong anywhere? Like trying to just navigate through those waters. But like I said, I think we just had so many different backgrounds and ethnicities. It, it very much, um, it very much just became a, a pride thing. And for me, what I was always taught is to, is to be extremely proud of where you're from and, and your journey to get to where you're at. So I, I just tried to uh, wave that flag as, as hard and as strong as I could to, to try to represent for our people. And um, I think along the way, um, you know, a lot of people took notice and, and uh, took an interest into, into my background. So how, how many different pronunciations of your last name have you heard you know what not as many as my first name because people even with my first name it was always like is it aleko aleko this that like it was all aleko like i got teased when i was a kid because there was that lego my ego commercial so oh. all the kids were like oh lego my ego um but I've, I essentially, just to make it easier on Oda, I adopted like Aleko, but my parents called me Aleko. My name's Aleko. Um, every Armenian knows me as Aleko. So that was like its own separate thing. With my last name, I could usually just see when people were just struggling to even like say, like when the teacher was taking attendance and they're like, um, uh, and I'm like, that's that's me. Uh, Eskandarian. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, even that. Classic. You know, you just say the letters and it's Eskandarian, but obviously in Armenian it's Iskandarian. So, um, yeah, again, part of the process, man, part of the process. Yeah, yeah, it is a process. Well, another thing that you know of very well and that is also a process is becoming a professional footballer. In your head, in your mind, is there a specific moment or a seminal moment where uh, that you can remember where you decided this is it? I'm going to be a professional footballer. Yeah, I think I had a couple of different moments. Um, the first thing I would have to say is, is um, you know, my, my father is a legend of the sport. Uh, my dad was a professional footballer, played for the New York Cosmos, played for Iran in the 78 World Cup, um, and is highly regarded by many as being, you know, one of the best players in uh um persian football history um, no pressure, and one no of the, yeah yeah one of the only greatest defenders in the world i mean he was on the world all-star team you know so 
for me, it was uh, always interesting because I, I didn't, I didn't comprehend any of that. To me, it was just my dad, you know, and I would always see people like wanting to take pictures with them or get his autograph or um, I would watch him kick around and, and people loved him and respected him so much. So it was always a weird thing that I like just kind of blocked out where I was like, it's just my dad. I don't know why they're being weird. Right. Um, so at a certain point when you're, when I got old enough to realize like, Oh no, like my dad, my dad, like shut out Maradona. My dad played with Pelé. My dad, um, you know, played against and with all these guys that I looked at as heroes. Then it started to click of like, Oh, I might want to listen when he speaks to me <laughs> about these things. So um, I kind of went through that process. And then um, I very much grew up just playing in my town locally. And um, I had, I always had a huge chip on my shoulder. I was, I was child. Like I was like, I have an older brother who was like a saint. Um, <laughs> and then I was like the bad one. Like I had a big mouth. I didn't always, you know, follow the rules. And so um, I got punished often. And soccer was my therapy. It was my release. Like, it was my opportunity to just get out there, burn off energy, do something that I was good at, be creative. And um, it was my escape from being second best to my brother inside my house, right? So um, that's how it all started. And finally, I got to an age where people were like, hey, you should try out for the state team and the regional team and the national team and all these different things. And at first I was like, Ooh, I don't, I'm not ready for that. I just play for fun and with my friends locally. And then, uh, I'm obviously super, super competitive. So once I like got my foot in the door and I, I felt the taste of failure. That's when, you know, I made a promise to myself that I'll never, I'll never allow myself to feel that again. So, um, yeah, just getting getting cut and different things like that at age 14, 15. I would say by age 16, I was like, okay, I'm on a mission now where I know what I need to do, and I'm not gonna let you know any excuse get in the way of whether it's you know politics or uh, I didn't get picked because of this or that or the coach or that. Then it was like, okay, I know what I need to do, um, and every time I step on the field, I'm gonna go out there and prove it with with a huge chip on my shoulder and um, you know, show the world who I am. That was, that was kind of my mentality from age 16, 17 on. Yeah, and, it, and it obviously seems to work for you. Yeah, it's necessary. You know, if I'm being totally honest, um, you know, there's always, there's always the expression that like nice guys finish last. Right. And I don't totally prescribe to that. I don't, I don't agree with that because one of the most important lessons my dad taught me was, if you want to be a good soccer player, first you have to be a good person. And that was really important to me because it's all, you know, it takes a whole lot of discipline. It takes uh, an obsession with your craft, right? We're talking about a lot of hours of watching, thinking, playing, training, like nonstop, um, you know, to get an edge and, and to improve. So uh, it forced me to like really take responsibility and accountability, but also, when you step on the field, you have to have a poor man's mentality. Soccer, soccer is a poor man's sport. When there's a 50-50 ball, you know, is it is it the guy that goes home to a silver spoon or the or the kid that um, 
that stomach is rumbling because he's hungry, who's going to win that ball, right? And so I got that very much from my dad of I don't care what you have off the field or um, if you're in a public school or private school, if you have a million dollars or zero dollars, when you step on the field, you have to be a poor man. And like I said, at around age 15, 16, you would think I was broke and, and homeless <laughs> with the way I was, I was out there on the field fighting and scrapping. And that's just something that uh, to this day I'll, I'll always keep with me because that's what you have to have. And it's just passion, right? Um, when you step on that field, you have to have that hunger and that love for the game um, or else it's going to pass you by. So something that's kind of unique to the American football system is the college game. That's something that we don't really see uh, in other countries. And it's something that you really don't hear about often. You never really hear about players speaking on their college experience. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like being uh, a football player in, in on a college team? And what was that experience all about? Yeah, college is very much part of the culture here in the U.S. And um, obviously for, I would say, most families here, but um, in particular my own, education is a priority. And that is, I think, one of the one of the, the great resources of our country is offering that higher education and, and providing um, students and in particular student athletes with a pathway to you know, play their sport, but still continue to get their education. And, um, and yeah, it, it was never, I had some offers to, to be a pro, um, coming out of high school, uh, when I was around 17. Um, but ultimately I, I wanted to go to school. Uh, I had a, a passion for, for knowledge as well. And, um, I ended up committing to the university of Virginia, which for me was the perfect balance between, uh, great soccer and great academics. And uh, I very much have proved myself there as well because, I, like I said, I, I was known in my area, right? Everyone in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, they knew who I was and, and what kind of player I was. But outside of that, I played for a poor club team. Like, we didn't travel. We didn't we didn't go to any anti-tournaments. I never won a state cup. I never, you know, been to any of any prestigious events. So... Um, there was very much a lack of, I guess, national recognition, where at UDA, all the players were national team starters and had huge reputations and all that stuff. So I went into UVA with, uh, I always say this, the lowest scholarship of, of any of the scholarship players on the team. And uh, my coach had never even seen me play before I got there. I was fortunate that an assistant coach um, had watched me somewhere and, and like convinced me to come. And, um, my head coach told me, listen, you're probably gonna have to redshirt your first year and you know, you're not going to play much. And, uh, I made a deal with my parents unbeknownst to my coach that I said, I just want one semester at UVA to see if I belong. And if I don't belong, then I'll just stop. And I, I actually had uh, been accepted into Princeton. So I said, if I, if I, can't cut it as a soccer player at UVA. I'll transfer. I'll go to Princeton. Um, and honestly, in my head, I was like, I'll probably move away from soccer and I'll just focus on on academics. Um, so I went into UVA um, on a mission. And that first year, I went from the coach told me that I wasn't going to play at all and, and redshirt to then uh, breaking the school record um, for, for goals and assists. So 
Um, right there in that year, everything changed for me in terms of national recognition. And uh, after that, it was just a matter of, of when, not if, I would be a pro. But being in school is, is a unique experience in that you're balancing academics with, with a, a pretty heavy um, workload on the, on the athletic side. Um, but I loved it because you got to meet so many awesome people who are playing different sports, who are masters of their own fields. And uh, yeah, UVA is near and dear to my heart, and I try to make it back to Charlottesville anytime that I can. Were, were there any other universities in the West Coast or any other parts of the country that showed interest in you at the time? It's funny. Like I said, it was I, I would I would go to a few events here and there where there would be like actual top recruits. But the first school that ever recruited me was actually Stanford. Um, and they had a great coach there named Bobby Clark, who and this is at a time where I was like fringe, like I wasn't even starting for my state team or anything. I would just come in and play for, you know, 20, 30 minutes spurts and credit to him because he had the eye for it. And right off the bat, he was like, I see something in this kid and, and I want to talk to him. Um, so Stanford was was the first. And then late in the game, UCLA uh, tried to try to convince me as well. But my parents were like, look, it's too too far of a trip. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a Trojan. Like, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> Most Armenians are are USC Trojans for sure. I feel like that's like the overwhelming uh, uh, Armenian choice, right, for USC. Uh, but we have a healthy mix. We have a healthy mix. Yeah, of them, for sure. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, those were the two schools in California that showed an interest. But uh, my parents were like, look, we're not gonna pay for a flight every time to come watch you play. So you better pick something relatively nearby. But uh, UVA was my dream. They, they had all these great national team players, and they had a pipeline from New Jersey, guys like John Harks and Tony Miola, Claudio Reyna. Those are guys that I looked up to, um, and they all went to UVA, so I kind of want to follow in their footsteps. So so at that stage, or at what stage, rather, did U.S. soccer approach you and start recruiting you? Yeah, I got uh, my first call-up to the under-17 national team um, when I was just – just turning 17 years old or right before I turned 17 years old. That was the first time that um, I got recognized. And I got called in. Um, I played in a few matches and it was late in the game because it was right before the under 17 world cup. And I came in, I did really well. And then the coach at the time pulled me aside and he said, listen, uh, I'll be honest. Didn't expect you to do this well, and you're making my job really difficult because I already had a, a set team to take to the other 17 World Cup. And he told me, he said, uh, you know, you're you absolutely deserve to be on this team, but I have other players that have been in residency for over two years training for this, and I don't feel right cutting them um, in order to to include you when you've only been here for a month. So um, I got cut. So I got cut from the under 17. World Cup team, and um, I was—I took a really, really, really tough. Um, it was—it was a tough pill to swallow, just because I knew, I knew I didn't do anything wrong. It was like you guys were late in finding me, right? So like yeah. I'm being punished because you guys didn't scout properly, um, and it, it just opened my eyes to like, you know, no one's gonna open the door for you, so break it down, and. If if I'm being totally honest, I'm probably actually really grateful for that experience because 
it lit a fire under me like never before, which is why I went to UVA, which is why I want to prove myself, and which is why that my freshman year, I was like, I'm going to force them to have to talk about me. And, and I'm not going to let them have any excuse of like, oh, we didn't know about him or we didn't see him. You know, I was on a mission to be like, all right, if you're involved in the game, you're going to hear about me. So just for our own curiosity, we kind of also want to know, was there any approach from the Armenian Football Federation for you? Were there any conversations? Did they call you? Did they send you a letter? <laughs> I don't know how they did it at that time, but was there any any sort of concrete interest from Armenia? Yeah, it's interesting because there are always conversations, always conversations, lots of conversations, but I don't remember ever getting anything official. I think at one point there was a, I think I remember receiving a letter at one point just saying that uh, they were watching and, and they were proud of me and things like that. But um, there was never any official invitation or training camp um, invite or anything like that that I ever received. Because uh, there was also chatter uh, from Iran as well, because my, my dad played for Iran. So as soon as I got called into the under-17 U.S. team, after that is when um, any kind of Armenian or Iranian scouts uh, began to take interest. And for me... I told you, huge chip on my shoulder. I'm always about proving people wrong. And, you know, if I'm if I'm being totally honest, I then was like loyal to the U.S. where I was like, you can't just show interest in me now just because they want me. Like, where were you before? So I definitely had a little bit of. Yeah. yeah, You know, a little bit of like, well, look, the U.S. found me and and finally, even though it was late and are now kind of, you know, inviting me into their into their. Um, environment. Now to, everyone to wants a piece of Aleko. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing is like, you always have to prove yourself, right? And, and for me, it's about, um, it, it's, it's loyalty. And so once I committed to the U.S., I was loyal to that. But um, especially later on in my career, I would have loved it if, if Armenia um, or the Armenian national team would have made a strong approach. Um, I absolutely would have, would have considered, you know, playing with them at least on a full national team level. Yeah, I think yeah. they're taking a little bit more aggressive approach now. Uh, I don't know. Back in the day, they were probably a little bit more passive, a little more respectful of other, you know, that you were a diasporan from the U.S. and 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 so on. But uh, maybe if it was well, today, well, not only that, not not only that, you have to remember the Armenian national in those days was not in a good place. Like they were, as I remember, they were kind of getting blown out. Of, of most matches, I don't think they even had the resources. Like, uh, if I had to bet, they probably wouldn't even be able to fly me down um, to go play for them. You know, like that's a that's an expensive ticket. Uh, so I don't know that they even had the means or the resources uh, to do it. So I never had any ill will by any stretch, right? It was always a dream to to someday have it become a reality to play for any full national team. Um, but yeah, I never received anything, uh, super concrete. Interesting. Well, you were an angry kid, chip on your shoulder, had something to prove, and you ended up being the first overall draft pick in the 2003 MLS super draft, which is on its own an incredible achievement. And 
what was that time like for you? Uh, obviously, this is something that is a life-changing event for many American athletes. And so hearing your name get called or getting the notice that, you know, you were drafted and not only were you drafted, but you were you were the, you know, the draft pick. What was that like? Uh, I was just proud. I was just proud. Um, but my pride comes from the work that other people invested in me. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I was... I was always the reason I had that chip on my shoulder is because I always felt I was, you know, second fiddle to my older brother at home. I was always kind of like the child kid, like who would kind of, um, you know, I'm, I was always joking, joking around, not taking things too seriously. And I really owe a lot to my parents, to my coaches, my teachers, uh, some fantastic friends who really motivated me, inspired me and showed me the way like. I'd be nowhere with without all those people in my life who were constantly kind of hammering into my head what it means to be a good person, what it means to be a good son, a good brother, a good friend, a good student. Um, you know, all those things were, were so important. And if I'm being honest, I always feel, and even to this day, I'm like this, I, I felt like I was letting them down, right? Because I, you know, if I use just my own parents as an example, my, my parents are amazing, such good people, and I, I strive to be like them so much, and I, I can't. Like, they're, they're, just, they're just better people than I am, you know? Um, <laughs> but they always uh, gave me some, a standard. They set a standard for me to try to reach, and um, all I wanted was to make them proud. That's it. And so being the number one pick, I knew it was – I knew I couldn't dwell on it too much because it, at the end of – in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't mean anything, right? Like it's it's an accomplishment for sure, but you have to, you know, throw it away um, into the memory bank, um, or else, like like there's a quote that I love: if you want to be number one, you have to train like you're number two, right? So for me, I still have to have that number two mentality in my in my head. So I never really dwelled on any accomplishments too long, but um, being selected with the number one pick, being the only Armenian. Uh, I think ever drafted at that point uh, and to be the number one pick was just a sense of pride for me that I hope that people that invested in me took pride in it. Like I wasn't going to celebrate it, but I hope they did because um, they earned it uh, just as much as I did. That's good to hear. Um, That's an awesome approach. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So as you know, last night was the MLS cup final where the Columbus crew blew blew out Seattle Sounders in a 3-0 win. Uh, Lucas Zelarayan, who was their designated pick from Argentina, became the third person to score two goals in an MLS Cup final. The other two are Landon Donovan and yourself. So it's 2004 MLS Cup final day here in Los Angeles, D.C. versus Kansas City Wizards. What was it like to be Aleko on that day? It was amazing. Um, it was a, a lifetime's worth of work that manifested itself in, into uh, into one day. Um, there's so much that led to that, though. You know, I, I was, like you said, the number one pick the year prior, and I really uh, struggled in my rookie season to break through. Uh, I'd say we didn't have the best team that year. We didn't have, I would say, the best coach that year. It was tough to get opportunities, tough to get consistency. Um, and yeah, it was a struggle. And, and now, 
because I had that number one pick target on my back. Now, all of a sudden, when I wasn't playing, it'd be like, oh, the number one pick is a bust. He's not even playing. Um, he must not be that good. And you start hearing the whispers and the chatters and the media and the fans and things like that. And I knew I was good enough, and I just wasn't given the opportunity. And um, if you look back on my entire career, I've always been the type of guy that my first year, my first like try at doing something, I usually am, am – uh, pretty closed off and almost shy and and afraid to like really express myself and for whatever reason the next year I always then like surpass expectations it was like that when I was 14 years old I got cut from the state team and then the next year I made the regional team but then I didn't make the national team and then made the region so it was always like you know um taking me a year to um, I guess grow in confidence or to just kind of get that I don't give enough mentality to um, just go for it. And that's what happened in, in the pros as well. My rookie year, you know, when I was the number one pick, everyone wants to be my best friend. All of a sudden I'm not playing and you see how quickly people jump off of the bandwagon, right? And I learned very very clearly that year, like, hey, all I got is my family, my close friends, like, I have my own inner circle, and that's my team. Everyone else is just noise. And so when I went into that second year, I had the same chip on my shoulder of, like, I don't care about anyone else. You know, I'm, I'm going to go out there and, and show people what I can do. Um, we had a new coach who also had that same mentality. So I thrived under him. Uh, his name is Peter Novak. And uh, same immigrant mentality, Polish uh, national team player, very much reminded me of my own dad of just, like, I don't care what your name is or what you've accomplished. You're going to earn it between the lines, and we're going to see, like, who who can uh, earn a spot. And for me, if you're going to draw a line and make it a fight, that's when I'm going to, you know, give it everything I have, and and uh, I won't leave anything uh, – or I'll, I'll leave everything, you know, on the field. So um, that year I was able to establish myself leading up to MLS Cup, like you said – it was kind of like the moment, right, where you're like, man, I have all these different hurdles that I've gone through in my life, and now we're in a final. Um, and uh, I'll never forget before that game, um, I always would organize a uh, – uh, I was with, with Athletes in Action, so we had a Bible study that we would try to do before matches and even on the road. And uh, it was myself and another teammate of mine – we, uh, sorry, I've, I've got the New York City soundtrack in, in the background, <laughs> so I apologize. Um, but basically, I'll wait till this passes back. It's okay, though. It, it shows you're a real person. Yeah, you're real. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we, we went to, we went to chapel to, to kind of hear, hear, uh, a bit of a sermon and, um, the the entire passage that we read right before that game was essentially like why not you right like you can't you can't always live life of um, in a way where you are counting on other people to do your things right or to be on the sidelines like at a certain point you have to take responsibility for your actions um, stop looking for others to to carry the load for you and, and like be your own man, be your own person. And I'm not kidding. When I was on the field that day, I was all pumped. 
playing in the game, first final. And five minutes in, Kansas City scores a goal, like rocket of a shot. And all of a sudden we're down 1-0. And I'm like, this isn't how we drew it up. Like this wasn't, this wasn't what I envisioned in my dream that Kansas City scores five minutes in. And they were a very good defensive team. So in my head, I'm like, crap, now that they have a lead, they're totally just going to shift and play defensively. And now Jimmy I'm going to have way yeah, way, I'm going to have way less space, way less opportunities. And I'm like, damn, this is going to be so, so much more of an uphill battle now. And as the game was going on, I like, you know, when you're on the field playing, especially when there's a loud uh, crowd, you don't there's you don't like you don't hear anything, right? You you don't hear anything except your own thoughts. And when I was out there on the field, I was just having internal dialogue with myself of like, oh, you know, make this play like, oh, I'm going to make this run or this. Like, you're just talking to yourself. And I remember telling myself like, oh, I hope I hope Heidi Moreno like goes on one of his runs and, and scores a goal and ties this game up for us. Like, oh, I hope I hope Christian Gomez will like smash this free kick. I, I hope this. I hope that. I hope this. I hope that. I hope we catch a break. And finally, it was almost like it just snapped where I just remember the Bible passage we, we were reading. And I was like, wait a minute stop waiting for someone else to do something like why not me why 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 not me right why not me step in and and me help out my team when, when we need it and i literally like nodded I, I swear if there's like video of me i think i like nodded to myself when i like made the decision like okay i'm gonna do something here and uh sure enough like within a five minute span um i scored two goals and was involved in the third and uh, and we took the lead and we won won the championship. But it was it was just very serendipitous the way it all kind of manifested itself. And uh, yeah, I couldn't be more proud, especially in LA in front of so many Armenians that were there. And I saw the Armenian flags in, in the stands, so I felt the love. And and uh, it was just a great day to to represent um, my family and, and my culture on that day. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you scored two goals against the Jimmy Conrad-led defense, and you became MLS Cup champion. You were named MLS Cup MVP. So it's safe to say you've reached a lot of heights that a lot of players aspire to. As a professional player, how do you maintain that motivation after such an achievement so early on in your professional career? Yeah, it was tough because I was only 21 years old, I believe. I was 21 or, or 22 at the time. And, uh, yeah, in many ways, it's like, damn, I didn't, I didn't expect this to happen this quickly. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, d- I definitely, I think, went through a bit of a struggle of where now you almost try to do more and you set even higher expectations. And I would say going into that next offseason um, – I probably try to think like, oh, damn, I have to I have to go to a different level and I have to have different expectations. Um, and maybe I carried myself a little bit differently as well, too. And and put most importantly, I put too much pressure on myself to do uh, well. And um, and yeah, I think I struggled with it a little bit early on. Um, I remember specifically in that preseason, like I think I was a lot angrier, like just angrier with myself if like things didn't come off or like if I scored one goal instead of three, like I was angry. Cause I was like, damn, like I've, I've reached 
I've reached this point. Now I need to get here. And it wasn't coming easy. And now I had a, an X on my back as well, where opponents were, were um, treating me different. And it was, you know, opponents had that underdog mentality against me now, where I was getting their best every single time. And uh, yeah, it was, it was something to, to deal with, of course. Uh, but then it all got derailed because uh, I had a bad concussion that next year. Um, and that totally killed my dreams of going to the 2006 World Cup because um, I missed the entire 2005 season. And uh, yeah, um, when when I went through that concussion that ended my year um, and in some ways like ended my career, um, it, it, uh, it flipped my life upside down where you, you realize how human and how vulnerable we are and um, how everything can change in one second. So it was uh, it was a crazy whirlwind, you know, when you think about my life, especially in like six month or 12 month uh, microcosms, it's crazy to see what a roller coaster ride it is. So um, I definitely went through a lot that uh, over those 12 months. So was there any sort of um, interest or personal interest for you to move to Europe at any point in your career? Was there any tangible interest from any clubs? Was that ever a goal of yours or were you happy in the MLS and being close to home and being able to, you know, play, play in the American league? Yeah. It's, it's funny you mentioned that. I think I was just talking to my parents about it the other day where I was like, guys, why didn't you push me harder to go? Um, but yeah, there was interest. Uh, like I said, when I was, 17, 18, there was interest to go to Italy and some other places. When I was 19, I was in uh, Denmark at Aalborg, and I spent a month there. And then when I was 20, before I signed with MLS, uh, I was with the U.S. Olympic team, and uh, we went on a trip to Portugal, where I actually played against Cristiano Ronaldo when Cristiano was, I think, 17 or 18 at the time and uh his club i scored a goal against them um and afterward i had interest from sporting lisbon to sign in in portugal so with all those clubs that had interest um if i'm being totally honest i was i was probably the deciding factor where i told my parents like no i want to start my career in the u.s um I, i traveled a lot to europe and i'd been all over and there was something that just like didn't feel right to me about calling. And back then, it shows you how old I am, right? Like I didn't have a cell phone or anything like that. So it was like payphone, calling card, and like being at a payphone in the middle of Denmark or Portugal and calling my parents and be like, hey, I scored two goals today. Like I played pretty well. And then being like, oh, cool. Well, it's late here, so we're going to go to bed. I'm like, okay. But, you know, it was <laughs> – it just didn't seem I didn't have, I didn't feel that connection and um, I've been very close to my family my, my whole life and so uh, yeah I, I would say that I was I was I decided not to go forward with that um, there definitely were opportunities and looking back that probably is one of my regrets of, of not going there and gaining that experience it probably would have helped my development a whole lot um, and I probably would have made a whole lot more money as well but. Um, you know, that's the path that I chose and, and, you know, I have to live with it. Uh, speaking of transitions, um, in 2017, you made it uh, your entire career. Uh, 
in the East Coast uh, where it's the most Armenian uh, franchise in the MLS. So you, Artur Agassian, Yuram Ovsisian, did that anything have to do with the move? And what was it? What was it like in the R- RSL? Um, so it's funny you mentioned that. When I went to Real Salt Lake, um, I was I was the only Armenian there. And when I got there, uh, the new head coach was Jason Christ, right? He had just taken over as the head coach. And when uh, he became head coach, he pulled me and a couple other players aside. And he's like, look, I want to change the culture here and I want to bring in um, top players. And I know as a former player that players themselves know who other top guys are. So he's like... If you know of any other players that you think are really good, that are maybe unhappy where they are or aren't playing much, let me know. So I, so I knocked on Jason's door and I said, listen, man, um, I'm friends with this guy named Yuram Sisian, and I think you should bring him here to RSL. And Jason was like, listen, uh, I've heard – I've heard he has you know, a little bit of, a, of an attitude issue and a chip on his shoulder. And I'm like, he's Armenian. We all have a chip on our shoulder. Like, trust me, it's it's not an issue. Um, and I'm like, I know he's a, he's a very good player and he's just not being given the opportunities in Kansas City and he's really frustrated. So he said, okay, you know, I'm going to go watch some video and, and we'll think about it. I said, okay. Called me, uh, I think we're all in the road actually, and he called me to his hotel room and he said, Listen, we're gonna make a trade for Yuram of Sisyan, but here's the deal. Like you're you're responsible for him if I bring him in. Like if he starts <laughs> misbehaving or acting out of sorts, like it's on you. So like I need you to like really put your arm around him and, and help him. I said, Yeah, no problem, I'd be happy to. So that's how we brought Yura in, uh, came to RSL. And uh, in the beginning, it was a little bit rough around the edges, for sure. I had to keep him from, like, fighting some of our teammates and things like that. Um, but we got along great. It was awesome to have a fellow Armenian on team. Um, but then I left him at the end of the year because uh, <laughs> at the end of the year, um, I got into a bit of a contract uh, negotiation with RSL. Um, and, I, and I made the decision actually then to go to Europe again. I went to Belgium and I was in Belgium for a month and I was about to sign a contract in Belgium. And then uh, when my agent called the MLS to let them know, uh, I was basically kind of given an ultimatum where they said, what will it take for you to stay in MLS? And I said, I'll only stay in MLS if I'm playing in New York or in L.A. And Ooh. so uh, suddenly Chivas USA came in the picture and uh, they said, okay, we have we have an offer for you to move to L.A., um, but you have 24 hours to decide. And so I'm sitting in a hotel room in Belgium, and I'm like, man, I've been waiting my whole career to play either in New York or L.A. Now the time came. So, again, I passed on the European offer, and I took the uh, I took the offer in L.A. And Yura got upset with me because he's like, bro, you brought me here, and then you left. But, <laughs> you know, that's how it goes sometimes. Uh, and after that season in Utah, uh, where you moved to LA and uh, played for uh, Chivas USA and Galaxy, what was it like uh, where it's the most Armenian city, uh, specifically Glendale? It was it was amazing, man. Um, I have a lot of family in LA, in Glendale. 
So it was uh, it was the best experience for me to be able to uh, go eat kebab whenever I wanted to, to get invited to dinners uh, every weekend, and uh, just to share the, those experiences with my family, to bring my cousins out to my games, um, and to kind of just like expose Armenians to like this different world that I don't think they had been exposed to. So I tried to do as much as I could within the community um, with like HomeNet Men or AGBU or um, uh, the different schools and, and mm. churches and things like that. Um, and I know the, the clubs that I was with, Chivas in LA, they both started promoting to the Armenian communities. So oh. it was, uh, it was awesome, man. I, I, in some ways I wish I did more, but I always, I told you, I always like wanted to block out, um, like I'm not, I, I've never been good with compliments, right? Like I, 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 I'd rather block them out and not hear them. So in some ways I had to keep a healthy distance from the Armenian community because I didn't want to always be showered with like, like, uh, their praises, you know, cause I'm like, no, I have to, I have to have the underdog mentality and keep working hard. But um, it truly felt amazing to uh, be surrounded by Armenians and, and hopefully help inspire the next generation. I don't well, think Armenians uh, would shy away from giving you criticism. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, listen, no matter what criticism anyone gives me, I'm my own biggest critic. So nothing will measure up, measure up to the standard that I hold myself. Um, and yeah, and, and if I'm being totally honest, there's also certain criticism that if the person that's giving it doesn't know what they're talking about, you, you just can't even, uh, you know, hold any credence to it. So, <laughs> actually, we would we would like to uh, uh, fit in a question from our listeners. How do you feel about diving for fouls in football as a whole? About what? Sorry. About diving for fouls in football as a whole oh. what do you think about it <laughs> yeah yeah so it's it's a tough one right because i hate diving um i know myself i i pride myself on never being a guy who, who dove and clearly with the injuries that i had I, i didn't shy away from contact maybe i should have dove and moved out of the way uh most times but um the the part that like the greater or people that have never played the game uh, at a high level, what they don't understand is that when any time these guys dive, they're just trying to help their team, right? They're, they're helping, they're helping to dupe the referee to trick the referee in order to gain an advantage that will help their team that will help their club and that will help their fans. Right. So, at a, and that's why, you know, you see, Um, a lot of diving, especially in, in South America and different places, because they have so much passion and they have so much uh, loyalty to the game that diving is seen as like, oh, you're just doing what you can to help out your family, essentially, right? So it's just like a different way of, of looking at it. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, it's, it's gotten out of hand. Um, I think it's gotten a little bit better in recent years, especially now with uh, VAR and video review. It's Um, everything is now um, being held accountable. So I think it is being cleaned up. But yeah, there was a while there where it was totally ridiculous because human error is is part of the sport with a, a human referee and uh, players were just doing what they could to take advantage of that. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, like you mentioned before, uh, unfortunately, your career was ended shortly after missing uh, time for some injuries and a serious concussion. Uh, what are some measures that uh, the sport can take to help mitigate these type of injuries, specifically concussions? It's tough. Um, it's a contact sport. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's anything you can do to totally get rid of concussions. Um, if you look at, so I had, uh, I think I had four or five bad concussions in my career that like, when I say bad, meaning I don't remember, like I was knocked out or I had amnesia, like don't even remember what happened. And, um, each one of those was totally different. And I don't think any of them, maybe, uh, I would say one or maybe two of them were like a dirty play, but the other ones are just a result of, you know, two players going at it at full speed. We don't have helmets or padding or anything like that. And when you jar into each other, it's going to cause a collision. And um, even if you had padding, which at one point in my career I was wearing a headband, it's not going to prevent anything because a concussion can be caused simply from whiplash, right? Just like if you're in a car accident and your, your neck gets jolted, when you have an unexpected force that hits you and causes your, your brain to sway back and forth, that's what a concussion is, is your brain banging back and forth inside your skull. So there's no way to ever, you know, stop that in any sport, if we're being honest. Um, but it's one of those things that has been really important for me to be an advocate of raising awareness, to finding uh, new ways to rehabilitate, to make sure um, athletes, coaches, trainers, uh, that they're treating this injury seriously because it could absolutely alter your life. Um, and I've, as we've seen, um, there have been plenty of athletes who have, who have ended their own lives, who have taken their own lives um, as a result of not being able to cope with uh, the aftermath of, of concussion. So um, I take it very seriously to uh, try to help as many people as I can to raise awareness, get education around it, and uh, and make sure no one has to go through what I went through. Because even for me, it was for about two years, a, a very dark period um, to retire at age 27 when I felt like I was just in my prime and scoring goals with the Galaxy, finally finding the joy in the game again, playing with Beckham and Donovan and, and this great team. And for, again, the rug to be pulled from under me was, was really, really tough because I didn't just lose soccer. I lost my identity. I lost my love. And now it's like everything that you spent your whole life working for now you can't do ever again. And it's it's a really, really tough realization to come to. Mm-hmm. That's unfortunate to hear. I think education is the biggest push at this point, raising awareness, like you said. Um, moving on to uh, post-playing career and uh, coaching, uh, you ended up at the New York Cosmos. What was your time like there, uh, especially with the family connection? It was uh, it was fantastic. It was interesting because when my career ended, I was trying to figure out what my purpose was, you know, um, in life, in the sport. So uh, in the beginning, I started doing some like commentary things with with the Galaxy, and uh, it just got too hard to watch. It got too hard to watch my friends and teammates and my peers play. Uh, knowing I was still 27 at the time and um, I felt like I had so much more to give to the sport and to the fans. Um, 
I needed to just step away. So I ended up leaving Los Angeles. I moved uh, back to Charlottesville, Virginia. I decided to go finish my degree because I left college early to go pro. And uh, yeah, I just got away from the sport. I got away from soccer. I didn't, um, uh, I, I tried to stop watching and um, just focus on my academics and, and just uh, almost finding a distraction, you know, for me uh, to, to just kind of reinvent myself. And uh, through there, when I was at UVA, when I was in school, uh, a couple of the kids that were on the men's soccer team, like, noticed me in a class and they're like, wait a minute, like, we didn't even, like, are you going to school here? What are you doing here? And they got all excited um, that uh, a guy who was a pro was now all of a sudden just taking, like, regular, like, like uh, <laughs> chemistry classes with them and stuff like that. <laughs> so they started saying a couple of these kids were like, hey, can you can you come to practice? Can you come wa- or can you watch my games? Can you help me out? Can you give me pointers? So at that point, the head coach found out that I was there because I didn't tell him either. And he reached out to me and he was like, hey, I'd love it if you could come to training and maybe talk to the kids. Um, so then I agreed to be a volunteer coach. And during that time, I realized, like, man, even though I have, I'm going through this huge, um, stressful, you know, depression of not being able to play, I'm like, man, I've learned, I've learned so much through soccer, and the game has taught me so much that it's my responsibility to pass this down to these other kids who are like praying to get into the position that I was once in, right? So um, from then on, I became a, a volunteer coach. And I just found passion in like just helping other kids to not make any of the mistakes that I made. So um, I got into coaching in that regard, and um, I ended up taking a job in Philadelphia as a youth technical director. And then after that, the New York Cosmos came calling um, Giovanni Savarisi, who is uh, now a head coach for the Portland Timbers. He was telling me about the project with the New York Cosmos, and he pulled me aside and he said, listen, there's... He's like, I'm the head coach, but if I'm being totally honest, like you probably deserve to be uh, the face of, of this new project, given the family ties. So he's like, I need you to be part of this. Um, and yeah, he just built a, a, a great vision of what he was trying to uh, what he was trying to build. And uh, it seemed like a great project that I want to be part of. So um, I decided to join and we had uh, an amazing, successful four years together coaching where we won uh, three championships and uh, I learned a lot and it was great to um, have it all come full circle with the New York Cosmos signing my dad, which is what brought my family to this country to then um, coaching them until the end uh, was, was special. And after experiencing uh, coaching and player development, uh, working with the youth, uh, what was the transition like from coaching to now becoming the MLS uh, uh, player development uh, head? How would you how would you feel that your work can be applied to the Armenian football system? Yeah, so towards the end of my tenure coaching, um, I started realizing I had a I had a huge passion for everything that goes into building a team as well. So everything from scouting to negotiating contracts, like all those things. Like the way I looked at it was, if you do everything right before the season even starts, 
then the season almost doesn't even matter, right? Like if you get things right in terms of building your squad in the right way where you have depth, you have veterans, you have young guys, like all these different things, that's more important than the job that you do on the field. Like that, that eases everything else. So um, I took a huge passion in doing that. And I give a lot of credit to Gio for uh, giving me the freedom and, and uh, ability to go out and pursue those types of things. And um, yeah, the opportunity came where I had to ask myself, like, where do I see myself long term? Is it coaching or being in a front office? And um, I think I was just ready for the next challenge and uh, decided to take the job uh, in the MLS front office at, at the MLS headquarters. And uh, yeah, being in the, in the player relations and player development department um, has been a great learning curve for me to work with all of our different clubs different ownership groups, GMs, um, and just get an understanding of, of the identity of, of each of our MLS clubs, how they want to build different strategies, different philosophies. Um, and uh, yeah, to be to play a small part in that has been a, a great educational experience that uh, I hopefully will carry with me into the next project that comes along. Maybe you can convince uh, Galaxy and LAFC to start looking into the Armenian community a little bit more. I'm sure there's a ton of talented players that play in Glendale. <laughs> yeah, they'll call me every now and then. They'll call me um, to try to get a beat on, on certain Armenian players. And uh, they were close on, on a couple. Uh, it's just funny because the, the Armenian player now is no longer a hidden commodity. Like you have Armenians that are now making big money in, in Europe and are playing uh, at, at a really high level. So now it costs a lot more money to bring um, Armenian guys in. So they're actually close on a couple players, but they end up getting more money elsewhere and uh, decide to go somewhere else. But uh, they're, they're definitely taking a notice. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm eager for sure to get the next Armenian uh, into the league. Well, speaking of Armenians, unfortunately there haven't been many Armenians in the MLS uh, but for the most part, the ones that have been in the MLS uh, and in the league in general have been successful. So we have Pasadena native, Yuromov Sisyon, who's an MLS Cup winner with RSL in 2009. We have Haru Karapetyan, who holds the record for the fastest hat-trick in the MLS, uh, five minutes. And we currently have Diego Rossi Masharadian, who plays for the Uruguayan national team, but you know he is ethnically Armenian and he's killing it with LAFC. And obviously there's yourself... So there's clearly a history of successful Armenian players in the MLS. Why don't more Armenians try to come play here? Um, I think they are trying. I think it's just a matter of finding the right fit. And in some cases, it's a matter of the leadership at each club, like, you know, having that comfort, right? Like, you need to have that comfort with the coach, with the GM, Um and that's that's kind of the next challenge for me is we haven't had any Armenians in any front office positions at any MLS club. So I'm hoping that down the line, uh, if I'm able to get there, I, I can basically promise and guarantee you that uh, I, I will be looking into that market for sure. So um, I don't know the exact reason why. Like I said, I think we've been close a few times here uh, in recent years, but uh, yeah, the market in Europe um, sometimes seems more attractive to some players, even with especially like the Armenian national team players, the travel from U.S. to Europe, even just from getting called in 
is a lot. Um, and, that, and that's a, a, a physical burden as well. So um, I think it will happen. It's knocking on the doorstep. And, and God willing, if I'm in one of those positions, I, I promise it will happen. So you travel to Armenia often, and you've even put on a clinic for young Armenian girls who are aspiring footballers uh, on your trip in 2017. Are there any plans for an Aleko Academy in Yerevan? And can you uh, help our boy Chadens out and bring him on board as a coach? He has a UEFA C license. Yeah. Uh, I'll say, first of all, you know, going back to Armenia has been such an amazing, rewarding experience. And um, I did work with uh, the Goals organization to put on a clinic for, for the girls there, many of them who were, who were orphaned, um, and just kind of raising stature of, of uh, girls' soccer and women's soccer in Armenia because I think that's been something that's neglect, been le- neglected in the, in the past. Um, but, yeah, when I when I got to spend some time there and and – even meet some of the professional coaches and the and the national team coaches. Uh, yeah, it definitely had my wheels turning. About man, I need to I need to start something, some sort of uh, academy or or a clinic or camp or something uh, to make sure I'm giving back to to the Armenian community and and kind of creating that bridge to the U.S. So um, hopefully it's in the works. I'm, I'm honestly too busy right now to to totally like commit myself to it. I would need a lot of help, but it's definitely something that's in the pipeline. And absolutely, the next time I go to Armenia, which hopefully will be in the near future in 2021, uh, I will definitely be uh, uh, getting more involved and having more serious conversations to make that a reality. Uh, we also, the last time I was there, I played in the Pan-Armenian Games, and I think I was like the oldest player that, that was there. And my, my team convinced me. I said, guys, I'm 38. I don't know how much longer I can I can you know compete with these young guys, but I promise them I'll give them one more go around. So next summer, if we have a Pan Armenian Games, I'll definitely be there uh, as a player as well. So that'll be a fun experience. How is that even fair? <laughs> it's definitely fair. I'm old now, man. I'm old, so we you have uh... age doesn't kill that instinct. <laughs> no, no, but father time does. So. Uh, it's one of those where uh, I, I loved it to just be able to share the field with those guys. And it it was mind-blowing and so humbling for me because at the Pan-Armenian Games, you're playing against all these different Armenians from different countries, right? So we played the Armenians from Kuwait, from Argentina, from Russia, from here to there. And I was blown away by how many of uh, Armenians in other countries knew who I was. Like, I did, it didn't register with me that they would even know who I was. And so many guys were like, you know, coming up to me after the game to take pictures and, and tell me that they watched my games and that I inspired them. Where I was like, holy crap, I didn't even know about this whole, you know, um, new ecosystem out there. And and that's what, you know, it fills my heart and it, and it makes me be like, man, I need to do more. I need to do more because, you know, the more we can share our story and inspire the next generation, it's going to pay itself forward. And, and we're all going to be happy when I'm fat and old and, and on a rocking chair. I want to see, you know, tens and hundreds of Armenians playing professional soccer all around the world. That's so great to hear. That's so awesome. Now, speaking about Armenian football structure, we have been talking about uh, what the Armenian national team was like uh, during your career and stuff. 
But now, luckily, the the team, the national team, the senior national team has considerably considerably improved, right? We have seen the results. We can see them play, and it's beautiful, really. Uh, do you happen to follow the Armenian national team, Aleko? Yeah, of course. Um, always watch whenever I can. Um, had a chance to meet one of the coaches. Obviously, they brought a whole coaching contingency from Spain um, that I think has done a phenomenal job. I got to watch them work last summer. Um, I watched the U-17 and U-20 uh, Armenian national teams playing, and I saw uh, some of the talented kids that, that were uh, coming up and, and the way the coaches were working with them. And it was a huge project, to be honest. I, I, I was a little unsure in the beginning how uh, it was gonna it was gonna merge and and if um, just culturally if if it would mesh and uh, yeah yeah I think this year the results speak for themselves where the team has done an incredible job the coaches have done an incredible job um, and I think the federation is in a much better place than it was uh, before um, I did have a conversation I believe with the new president um, uh, in the summer Mr Melikpekian. Yeah, so I'm I'm uh, I'm hoping for sure to continue those conversations. I have a, a standing invitation for him to come to New York uh, to visit the MLS offices. Uh, obviously, the pandemic is lasting a whole lot longer than we all anticipated, but uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm really I'm really eager to uh, you know pass along any of my knowledge to help the Armenian Federation any way that I can, um, and and hopefully in the future we'll have more collaboration so that's that's definitely something that is on my radar yes so let's let's say um manager joaquin caparros calls you and asks you i don't know do you want to be my senior advisor or something regarding armenian footballers would you join caparros's uh, coaching staff of course of course um obviously i I uh, would not leave my, my current day job uh, here in, in New York at MLS, but um, if there was a way that we could work it out where I could do consulting for them on the side and it didn't interfere with my current position, then, uh, yeah, I would be more than happy to. And um, if it was something more than that, you know, I would absolutely consider it and try to find a way to make it all work. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, as you know, We have won the Group C2. We are group winners, as we love to say on this podcast already. Um, we went undefeated for, uh, five consecutive games, which is, which is crazy. And uh, But now we got a tough draw in the for the World Cup qualifiers, right? We got Germany, Romania, Iceland, our well-known Macedonia, and uh, last but not least, Liechtenstein. What are your thoughts about this specific group we got? And uh, do we have a chance to win it? What would it take uh, as to you? What, what do you think it would take for us to beat this uh, group? We have to dream big. We have to dream big, man, because we have ability. Our players, our players have shown that they have ability. And um, the beautiful thing about football, the beautiful thing about soccer is On any given day, if those 11 players that are on the field and the seven or, or uh, 11 more that are you know, on the bench or in the stands come together, you can accomplish amazing things. And it's not about being better than each 
like if we talk if we compare Armenia to Germany, right? It's not about comparing yeah. each individual player to each German player and saying like, oh, they're they're better than us, right? It's about how you come together on that day when you compete. And it's a tall it's order for sure. It's an uphill battle. It's gonna take a miracle, but I believe in miracles, man. And I truly believe that um, <laughs> you know we came close for the Euros. Uh, what was it? Four years ago, right? Uh, Where um, you know I think we we kind of almost shocked ourselves a little bit. So I hope with that experience, it now has changed the the culture within us to think. You know, we, it's no longer impossible because we already came so close once. Uh, now we have to have that mentality. And with guys like Henrik Mkhitaryan playing uh, at Roma, yeah. at Arsenal, at Manchester United, now he knows he's played with these guys that, that we're going up against, these top, top players in the world. And he's done well against them. He's competed with them and against them. So his leadership is going to be huge to inspire confidence in the rest of the squad to know that they can compete with these guys. And it's now... Because so much of it is mental, right? Usually when you're going up against guys that on paper are better than you, it's you're already defeated mentally that you don't belong on the same field with them. So you have to erase that yeah. from your head when you step on the field to give yourself a chance. And I think now with the different successes of different players in Germany, in Russia, in Ukraine, in, in Italy, and all over Europe, I think now they're going to have that confidence to think like, okay, we're going to step on the field as equals and we have 90 minutes to, to see who the best man is. I love that approach. I love that spirit. But we are about Mahitayan, right? Let's take him out of the picture for a minute. And I want to know who Aleko Skandarian thinks is a standout Armenian player. Could it be from today, from the future? Any Armenian player who you consider to be uh, interesting, particularly? Yeah, I really loved... Um, and I want to look up the guy's name right now, actually, because um, we can help maybe, you out in that. Maybe one. you guys will know. But the guy who I'll tell you right now, I'll tell you right now. We know we know every single player there is to know <laughs> Armenian related, so don't worry about it. The guy I really like is uh, Bayramian. Oh, Khoren, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I like Khoren Bayramian. I like Tigran. The curly devil. Um, you know, and, Tigran Barsegan had the most assists in the UEFA Nations League. Yeah. Crazy well, statistic. Tigran's a guy that, uh, like I said, has, has been on the radar. Um, you know, I can confirm that he's been on the radar of, of MLS clubs as well. And, um, yeah, he's, yeah, he's done he's, fantastic. He's been to so. LA a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's... There's been a lot more interest, but yeah, those two guys out on the wings, uh, I really like the way they, they've played. Um, I still think we need more quality up front uh, with the strikers. I know we have the young kid who's who has a lot of potential, but um, I think if we get that that consistent goal scorer, you're going to see uh, some special things from our group. If you haven't heard of him, uh, Vahan Bichakcian. He plays for MSK Zelina in Slovakia. He is... In our opinion, I think we have a unanimous opinion on this podcast <laughs> that that kid is going to be the next best. He's army. the tall guy, yeah. No, he's very short. Oh no, yeah. okay, then I haven't seen him. He, who's, he, I've seen the tall guy who's also young. I forget his name. Tall guy who's also which Eric, one? Eric Was it uh, Balekian, the Balekian. the one from Argentina? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. good too. Yeah, he's we, my boy. 
He's, <laughs> he's well, good. I thought he was just, you know, a little bit inconsistent, but for sure has potential. Um, I haven't seen the the shorter guy that you're talking about, so I need to watch him. Yep, he's uh, he's 21 years old. He just made a senior national team debut during the UEFA Nations League. He gave the uh, winning assist in the last match against. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, 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 okay. I'll see that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You should look him up. He's uh, he's gonna be a very, <laughs> very special player. He actually, he opinion. actually trained with uh, Fiorentina for a few months, and he was set to sign with Fiorentina, but uh, he ended up choosing Zilina in Slovakia because. The, the youth system in Zilina is great. I mean, they have been uh, exporting many, many players abroad to top leagues in Europe. So I think it was a good decision. Yeah, for sure, yeah. So, sometimes it's not about the name of the club. It's about the path to get to the, the right club. Exactly. So I, I agree yeah. with that. It's a new method, kind of, in a way. Like, it's something to focus on. As in, like, how we mentioned before with the player development. It's something we really push in the youngsters to do it. And that's, and that's something that we're doing with MLS as well. And you see now with, you know, Alfonso Davies being sold to Bayern Munich for $20 him. million dollars and now being one of the top left backs in the world. If he was still playing in MLS, people would say, no, he's not that good and this and that. And now it's opening up a lot of people's eyes to think, wow, this guy played in MLS for, for three, four years yeah. And maybe we didn't give him enough credit. And now you look at Tyler Adams and Miguel Almiron and this guy, that guy. And now all of a sudden, that's how you build, you know, uh, the infrastructure of a league and, and the reputation of the league. And that's where, you know, youth development is so important to our league as well um, as we try to grow on the world stage, um, not just to convince the top talent to come, but to produce the top talent and be able to have them funnel into some of the top teams in the world. Um, it's only going to help our league prosper. So it's it's something that's happening all, all around the world, and uh, it's uh, it's extremely important. I think this will be a difficult question. Um, in looking at uh, Inter, for example, like a new established club, um, how do you how do you find it find a correlation between uh, an Armenian team doing something very similar? And also, how how do you find it if Armenian players found an opportunity like that in abroad, uh, like in America, like specifically in MLS? What, what do you mean by how how do I feel about it? Like, like in terms of uh, the correlation between um, how a new established club can create more opportunities for players to develop, and how we how as uh, us as Armenians can do it uh, abroad or in Armenia. Of course, it depends on the resources, but abroad, I think, would be more uh, flexible. Yeah, I think, you know, it's all about the right opportunities for, for different players. And um, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. Like, you can't say, okay, we're going to do this, so this is going to work for every player. It's not, you know. Yeah. Some, some players need to be at home. Some players need to get away from home. Some players need to be challenged. Some players need to be loved, right? Like you're dealing with humans. So um, it's not like you just wave a magic wand and it fixes everything. So I think first and foremost, the important part for Armenian footballers is to fix the culture and the mentality. That to me is the most important thing because when you, when you now have uh, a different mentality showing up to training every day, 
knowing that you're dreaming or aspiring to be something bigger than what's just in front of you, right? That's that's so important because you can fall victim of your own environment where you can just say, ah, I'm the best player in uh, Yerevan, so I don't need to work hard anymore. That's a different mentality than saying, okay, I'm the best player in Yerevan, but I'm not even close to being the best player in Brazil or Portugal or Germany. What are those guys doing, right? And if I can be exposed to that and see that, and whether it's hearing it from my coaches, from my family, from my opponents, that is now a different mentality when you go to train every day. Now you're thinking, shoot, what I thought was good isn't good enough. And now when you already have that, mentality and now that chip on your shoulder um and that obsession to to get to that next level that's when i think true development happens so whether it happens in your own backyard or whether you have to go somewhere abroad to do it that mentality is what carries with you that's why you see so many top brazilian players top argentine players no matter where you, you have brazilians in moscow that are killing it yeah. You think they are comfortable in Moscow? No chance, no. right? <laughs> but they have a mentality already of where they come from. Some of these guys in favelas, they know soccer is my avenue out to a better life. And they have that already ingrained in their, in their mentality. So when you take them to anywhere in the world, they're going to show up, play with that joy and express themselves and play like their lives depend on it. Because in some cases it does. So for me, if we fix that culture and that mentality piece, everything else will sort itself out. Yeah, I think us as a podcast, that's what we're trying to aim as well. We're trying to push the mentality of also uh, of our listeners to to believe that us as an Armenian national team, we're actually going to reach top level at some point. The more we push, the more we do. Um, how do you find it? Um, the what do you find as a difficulty, as something challenging uh, to do it uh, with diasporans? Because most of us are diasporans. How do you, how, uh, what do you think? I think uh, is it just mental abroad, uh, abroad and all over the world? Yeah, I, I think uh, the big challenge is getting the right people in place. You know. I, like I said, it's, it's been awesome to see uh, the coaching contingency from Spain uh, going to Armenia and helping out those youngsters and to see new leadership in the, in the federation. Um, it's been such a huge step in the right direction. However, don't think that the rest of the world is just going to stop and let us catch up, right? They're now also <laughs> investing more and more and putting more resources to, to stay ahead. So um we've made great strides but we have to just keep on going and that unfortunately involves resources and money and opportunities um but i know for a fact that once you start producing top level players clubs and and fans and uh sponsors around the world will take notice and once you're able to produce more mojitarians of the world uh, and you're able to do it on a consistent basis the money will start coming in the resources will start coming in and people will take it a lot more serious so it's up to us to just make sure that we don't uh you know celebrate our success and think that we don't have to do anything more soccer is always evolving man you always have to do more and more 
uh, with less sometimes. So uh, yeah, we have yeah. and to, this applies to, to more than football, right? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, it can be taken to life. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And listen, we part of what we talked about, right, is you know having that pride in our culture, especially with everything that's going on right now. Um, to to know that the rest of the world is not going to give us a helping hand. You know, we're we're seeing that uh, firsthand right now. You know, no one is. No one is going to go out of their way to help us. So we need to help each other and, and help ourselves. So I think the more we can stick together, empower each other, you know, I think in the past there was always a little bit of ego stuff as well, if, if I'm not mistaken, whether it was like, oh, diasporan Armenians versus Hayastansi uh, versus Parska Hay, like there was always like these different little things right or like different organizations of oh this is home and this is agbu this is it you know at the end of the day we're all armenian and all we have is each other so we have mm-hmm. to cast all that aside and work together to look after each other and elevate each other so regardless of who it is and i and i appreciate you guys what you're doing with your platform as well um and for inviting me on because if there's one thing that i've learned through all this is that we need to be unified and if we come together uh with a unified cause, we have so many brilliant, talented people that we could accomplish some amazing things. I think that was, that's well said. Uh, it was amazing what you said. And um, I want to continue with this uh, discussion um, that uh, during this uh, war, you were very uh, vocal about what was going on. And despite many Armenian celebrities like yourself having uh, considerable, considerable amounts of following, Many people uh, weren't and still aren't aware of the events, unfortunately. What difficulties did you encounter during this time? And like, how how did you feel overall the issue uh, was brought up in social media and the average population? Well, there's, there's different parts to it, right? Because on one hand, I was really, really frustrated, sad, angry, disheartened by the lack of media coverage, the lack of politicians or leadership um, speaking about the atrocities and what was happening, um, the lack of, of uh, just humanity um, displayed by uh, the general population. And it really, really affected me in a way that I, that I can't um, truly explain or describe, but um I would say the same way the same way I was on the field where that kind of that switch goes off where you're like okay if you're doubting me now I'm going to show you that's kind of the same attitude I had uh, on social media and through my own platform to be like you're not going to shut me up like no one is going to um like people are if if you know me or if you follow me you're going to know about this You have no choice because the same way I I said in my playing career when I said, you know, you can't blame like not knowing about me or not scouting me or anything like that. Like I'm going to make you uh, learn about me. That was my mentality of I'm going to make you learn about um, these innocent people that are being killed and displaced um, and this this uh, absolute inhumane attack um, on Armenia and on Artsakh. So, uh 
Yeah, it was really tough. I would say the silver lining, though, is that I've never been so proud to be Armenian, and I've never been so proud of the diaspora, of all these people coming together to make noise, to uh, to uh, unify in a sense that we um, – we're, we're not going to go down without making some noise and we're not going to go down without a fight. So I'm really, really proud of all of us coming together. Now, unfortunately, we're at a point where <clears throat> there is, it's reached some sort of a resolution, if you want to call it that. And now I see again that we have a lot of different voices coming forward and, and again, a lot of different opinions coming forward. And so at this moment, I'm kind of in a learning phase where I, I'll be honest, I, I never followed Armenian politics too closely. So I've been hesitant to attach my name to any sort of politician or leader because I simply don't know enough and I don't know who to trust yet. So I'm just trying to gather as much information as possible. But I think what I am clear on is that I want, I want what's best for our people, our future, um, and and our history, right? And so, if we can find a way to all come together to make sure we're appointing the right people in in the right uh, roles to ensure that that's all coming together, uh, we need to we need to all unify as one to to agree on that. But it's it's going to be a, a long battle. And in terms of others, of other you know influencers, celebrities, whatever you want. You know, you have to be passionate about it to speak on it. You know, I'll never, I'll never hold it against someone else for not speaking on something that I believe in, because they have to believe in it in order for them to feel comfortable talking about it. And just as the same way, I would want someone to understand my own um, phase that I'm going through right now, just trying to learn more and understand more about the current situation there. So um, I think we just have to be respectful of each other instead of pointing fingers and um, alienating each other. I think it's more about coming together and educating each other and, and drawing people in because I know a lot of Armenians who, you know, are so proud of, of their Armenian heritage, but for whatever reason, they have felt alienated or pushed, pushed away, or they've been made felt that they're not Armenian enough or different things like that, which, you know, hurts my heart because like I said, I've, I've, I've spent, and, and I'll share my own anecdote, right? Like I grew up in New Jersey. Armenian was my first language. I spoke English with an accent. I spent uh, so many years educating, you know, Americans or, or um, uh, just people that I encountered about Armenia and about the culture. And it's funny that there are Armenians that I meet to this day who don't know me personally, but just, you know, had heard about me. And they have their own assumption that I'm like a whitewashed American, like whatever, whatever. And then they see that I speak Armenian. They're like, oh, I didn't know you spoke <laughs> and this and that. And I'm like, and it's almost now they like look at me different in a different way, right? And they, and they are more respectful about it. But I'm like, regardless of what you know, it shouldn't matter, right? It shouldn't mm. matter. If, yeah, if we so have the many same ways blood, to be Armenian. Yeah, exactly. We're all as one. Our, our history dictated that we're all spread out and all over the place, right? Our own tragedies um, dictated that. So to hold that against another Armenian doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm hopeful that we can 
all come together. And if you see with any of the messages that I post, it's never about alienating. It's always about unifying and educating. And, and I believe that with love and education, um, we'll, we'll grow as a diaspora and as a people. Were there any non-Armenians in the football world reaching out to you and asking about what was going on? Tons, tons. Um, you know, uh, Ara mentioned earlier with with uh, this signed jersey auction that I'm putting together now uh, to yeah. help raise funds for Armenia. It's been amazing to reach out to so many different athletes, um, all of them non-Armenian, who uh, have been asking like, hey, I've I've been following your posts. I've been reading the news. Like, what is going on? Um, and they have a general sense of of uh, just wanting to help. And um, I think that's something that's within athletes, right? Because every athlete, especially professional athletes, you have to overcome something to get to where you were. You know, whether it's uh, overcoming odds, people doubting you, or whatever it is. Like, you had to have at one point an underground uh, or underdog like killer mentality to like rise above and, and uh, you know, om- almost like beat the oppressor to, to like, to uh, show yourself. David and, and Goliath. I think when pro athletes see the story of Armenians and what they're going through, they can relate. And so, so many of them have been uh, very generous in, in donating these items because they, they can relate to the Armenian people and they want to fight for the Armenian cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a year older uh, of fellow Armenian uh, Iranian Antranik Temurian, who's a former English Premier League, played two World Cups, first and only Christian captain in the history of Iran. Uh, have you t- um, ever got the opportunity to talk to him or uh, any other Armenian world-class footballers uh, like yourself to possibly arrange a charity exhibition match uh, for the cause? Yeah, I've I've never met uh, Andranik Temurian. Obviously, um, I've heard uh, great stories about him, and I believe he's even uh, paid tribute to my father for kind of helping to pave the way for for Armenians and Christians um, with Timeli in Iran. Um, when the when the uh, war or or attack first started. That was actually one of the first things I wanted to do was was to kind of get everyone together and organize a charity match. But the more I thought about it, with the current climate in the world and not being able to travel or go anywhere, it didn't make any sense at all. Because I was like, we can't even have any fans at professional matches. How are you going to put together a charity match um, and yeah, have people yeah. you know try to travel and things like that? So um, I didn't. I I kind of put those plans to the side. But yeah, I would absolutely love to collaborate. Um, with all of the Armenian, uh, notable Armenians, um, not just even footballers, influencers as well, to try to organize something when this is all over and when we can travel. I think it'll be really important for us to uh, uh, put something special together that will uh, get the world's attention. Look, we're not that influential yet, but we'll, we would like to be there and help in any way that we can. You guys are invited. You're in. No problem. <laughs> Maybe we can commentate. Maybe we can comment, <laughs> commentate over a game. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, man, we, we need to tap into our own. So um, you're seeing it a lot more now in, in every different industry, whether it's tech or acting or singing or dancing or um, business or politics, like – we're starting to see a lot of different Armenians, um, you know, rising up and uh, and showing 
yeah. their, their worth in, in the industry. So we, we have to bring everyone together to celebrate all of us. Yeah, it's like we have to boost each other, right? Yeah, and that's and that's something that's um, that you know I felt like we haven't done a great job with. I feel like we always try to pick and choose like flaws or yep, um, yep. you know it, it's part of it's literally part of our culture as well to just have banter and uh, you know downplay things. But um, in yeah, my mind, kind of be suspicious, right? Yeah, yeah, and in in my mind, we we have to kind of put that aside and and just uplift each totally. other and put ourselves on a pedestal. Totally, yeah. Uh, we were talking about the pandemic earlier a little bit. You actually mentioned it, right? So I wanna I wanna know what have you been up to this uh, unprecedented, uh, unreal kind of surreal science fiction 2020 we've been having. Working. Um, I've just been. You know, I think everything got put into perspective just with regard to my family and uh, making sure they were okay first and foremost. Um, so I went, spent a good deal of time in New Jersey at my parents' house to make sure they were good. And uh, in some ways, I became a little, uh, a little dictator at home because I didn't let, let them leave the house. And I told them, whatever you need, I'll take care of it. Um, but they were getting frustrated because they wanted to leave and wanted to go shopping and things like that. Uh, but you know it brought us closer together as well just to like I said you kind of see the people that mean the most to you and you try to cherish the moments you have because anytime tragedies like this happen you realize you know how fragile we are and and uh, how yeah. you know it could all end you know any day so uh, for me the priority and the focus has been just spending time with my family making sure that they're okay and doing everything that I can to help them and protect them. And then um, working as well, you know, obviously working at MLS, our season got shut down and uh, we faced a huge hurdle to kind of get back into play. And uh, it was a lot of work and hours and dedication that was put into getting the league back up and running, creating the bubble, creating testing protocols uh, that allowed us to now finish the season um as safely as possible and i think we set a benchmark for all leagues around the world to follow and and um did some amazing things so uh, very proud to be part of that group to help uh, get our league up and running and to help um soccer here in the u.s uh to continue to grow yeah it's kind of been a self rediscovery gap year for many of us and uh you already mentioned Your parents, you're, you're a very family-oriented man, as you yourself have been uh, pointing it out. And uh, it's a very Armenian thing to do and uh, something that we love, going back to basics. Uh, you seem to go on a, on a hike, right, with your dad quite often. Uh, you take pictures by a lake, uh, beautiful pictures, uh, the sightseeing. Is there kind of a story behind that hike, that uh, hobby of yours, if you can call it that? Uh, and why is it special? What does that mean to, to you? Yeah, uh, you're the first person to ask me that. So I've never, I've never given this answer. But um, yeah, it's no secret that, I, that uh, almost we try to go every Sunday. I'll, I'll go on a hike with my dad. And the way it started and why it's been so special is um, – I, uh, when I had my last concussion 
And I told you I was in a really dark place for about two years where I couldn't do anything. Um, when I talk about how debilitating the, the injury was, I couldn't even go outside. I, I was, uh, I couldn't get my heart rate up, so I couldn't go for walks, I couldn't go for runs, I couldn't work out, I couldn't, um, I couldn't watch too much TV, I couldn't be on a computer too long, I couldn't be in the sun. Like, everything that made me feel alive killed me. And, you know, you get into a deep mental state of depression where you're like, if I can't do any of these things, what like, what can I do? What is my life now? And uh, I hit a point where it was really, really, really tough to try to understand, like, what what do I even have to offer if I can't, you know, if I can't enjoy life or if I can't even, you know, properly express myself. And, um, and yeah, it was really, really tough to get these bad migraines and bad headaches and uh, vertigo anytime that I tried to exert myself. And, uh, and to give you context, like, I even – to show you how bad it was, I I passed out just at a family dinner simply because we were telling stories and laughing too much, kind of like too many different voices and laughter kind of was overload for my brain that I fell in the back of my chair and passed out. And my entire family, my uncles, everyone was like, what is going on? Like, it was one of those where you're just like, man, how can, how can I continue living this way? So... Um, you know, going through that, uh, at a certain point, you know, I learned to, that I had to become my own doctor. Right. And I Mm -hmm. met with a neurologist who said that, you know, you can slowly exert yourself and it's okay to get headaches. Um, as long as you don't wake up with one the next day. Right. So it kind of gave me like a new goal, like, okay, I can now do some things and it'll be okay to deal with to mentally prepare myself to deal with the bad headaches um, and just pray that the next morning I don't wake up with one. So little by little, I started to almost like retrain myself how to do anything, like go for walks or whatever. And one of the first things I did was I went for a hike with my dad. And my dad convinced me because I was like, dad, I don't want to go. And then all of a sudden I get a headache or if I pass out, you know, on the top of a mountain or whatever, like, you know, I was like, uh, I psyched myself out that I'm like, I can't do it and it's going to be bad. I can never do this again. And um, my dad was like, no, 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 whatever it is, I don't care. Just come. Don't worry. If, if you pass out, we'll carry you down. Don't worry. Like, you know, just just come. And uh, he convinced me and I went and just the feeling of being able to um, sweat again and feel sore and like exert myself, felt amazing. And I had a headache, I got a, I got a pretty bad headache, but the next morning I didn't have one. So I said, you know what, let's do that again. And we started going more and more and more, but I needed that kick in the ass from my dad to like convince me to even like, uh, to be vulnerable in that way. Um, so that's how the, the significance started with the hike. And then if you fast forward, this is a few years ago. My dad, um, actually, while we were on a hike, and I've never told anyone this story because my dad doesn't want to public, but um, while we were on a hike, uh, I noticed my dad at one point uh, kind of lagging a little bit. And I was like, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm okay. I just, you know, and my dad's, my dad's very active, fit, plays soccer. And um, 
he was like, uh, he was like, yeah, I think I got elbowed. So like my rib hurts a little bit because I played soccer today. Someone elbowed me. So I'm like, oh, okay, I haven't heard you complain about it. He's like, yeah, no, only when I like run, I kind of feel it. And I'm like, show me where it is. And he kind of showed me and we're walking, we're walking. And I stopped. This is, we just started the hike. And I said, dad, we're going home. And he's like, what are you talking about? We, we just started the hike. And I'm like, no, we're going home. And he's like, why? Good. And I'm, and I'm like, I think it's your heart. It's not your rib. And he's like, what are you talking He started laughing. What are you talking about? And I'm like, I just have it in my head. When you showed me where it is on the left side, I think it's your heart. It's not your rib. And he's like, get out of here. You're crazy. He wanted to keep going. And I'm like, I grabbed him. I said, no, I'm not joking. We're going home. So we went home. And um, I told my mom. We set up a bunch of appointments. And sure enough, my dad had to have uh, like quadruple bypass surgery, um, emergency, like the next month. And uh, it was crazy because uh, all the, the surgeons, doctors that we saw were like, you know, if, if you kept on going up that mountain, you yeah. know, who knows if that would have been it, you know, if, if the heart was getting more pressure. So um, that was like another moment there that we had where it was kind of like a come to Jesus moment. And, and uh, I believe it was truly fate. And then obviously when my dad went through that surgery and, and the extensive recovery, um, it was then his turn of not being able to do all the things that he loved and playing and being so active. And uh, so I'll never forget the moment where we first started to go back on a hike together for him to get exercise and, and build up his heart and build those muscles. So it, it's been a very personal thing for, for both of us that I think has helped us through uh, two really uh, difficult times in our lives. Well, wow, that's, wow, great, that's great to hear. Um, I hope your dad is doing okay, and I hope he's recovered from that. I'm, I'm sure being a you know lifelong soccer player, both of you guys, uh, health-wise, are very healthy individuals as much as you can be. And you're, you said he's still, does he still play? He's is still, he still playing, still playing. I'll, I'll tell you this: when when he got the heart surgery, and the first time we went up the mountain afterward you know when like he kind of graduated to like being able to do that because he had to ride the bike and walk and all this stuff so it was months and months later that finally the doctor was like okay it'll be okay for him to go hiking and when we first went every five seconds i'm like are you okay you okay you sure you're okay you sure you're okay and the first thing my dad says like man this is the first time in years i feel like i can breathe like i i feel like i like i'm in better shape like i could breathe normally now and it just gets you thinking like how many how much time that he, he was probably struggling with. Uh, and I learned a lot about the heart as well, that he was probably struggling to breathe, but he just probably thought, oh, I'm, just getting, I'm just getting older, right? I'm just getting yeah. older a little bit, but it was actually like a much uh, bigger problem. So um, now he goes hiking with me and he's like, oh, I feel even better than before. So I want to go even faster. So he's in, he's in great shape. Thank you for asking. That's great. That's great to hear. So we did a little deep dive on your Instagram. Uh, that's how you know we found the 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 hiking pictures and kind of connected the dots. But another interesting uh, thing that we saw was a picture you had with uh, Ronaldinho, and in that picture you had thanked Harisa Stoichkov, <laughs> and you trained with Barcelona. What what was that all about? Yeah, uh, crazy man. My life is crazy. <laughs> um, 
my rookie year playing for DC United, my teammate was Hristo Stoichkov. And uh, Hristo, I think, took a liking to me because I was left-footed like him. Um, and I was the youngest guy on the team. So being the youngest guy on the team, he was always, uh, you know, picking on me in, in certain ways, but also helping me. And uh, during that summer, um, Barcelona came to play some friendlies in the U.S. And uh, when they knew, obviously, Hristo was in D.C., the entire Barcelona team, like, bowed down to Hristo. He's such a club legend over there. I'm not kidding. Literally, all the guys on Barcelona were taking pictures of Hristo, getting his signature, like, praising him. And... Um, and Risto was one of my favorite players as well. I, I had a Risto Stoichkov poster in my room when I, when I was a kid. So it was really, really cool just to see that the respect they were paying him um, and how much clout he still had at Barcelona. And all of a sudden, while Barcelona was there, they were there for a week, Risto pulls me aside one day and he says, listen, I recommended you to the coaches at Barcelona that you're a top American talent that they need to take a look at. And I'm like, What? And I'm like, I'm not ready for Barcelona. Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, no, listen, trust me. They asked me if there were any players on the team that um, that I felt had potential to play in Europe. And he picked me and my roommate at the time, who was a goalkeeper as well, another young player. And he goes, so I picked you two guys, and I, you guys are going to go train with Barcelona tomorrow. And me and my roommate are like, holy shit, like – this is insane. So I didn't even believe it. I was like, oh, man, this might be a joke that he's playing on us or something. But sure enough, uh, next day he told us where to go. And we went there. We showed up. And the kit man gave us the Barcelona kits, put them on. And next thing you know, I'm playing – I'm juggling and playing 5v2 with Ronaldinho, Quaresma, like all these – incredible legendary players at Barcelona and I'm just sitting there like wow like pinching myself like I can't believe this wow did you ever get a call from them anything no no so no. so we trained and um basically <laughs> basically I don't think Barcelona even expected us to be there I think Cristo forced us to to go <laughs> I think Cristo was just kind of like they're coming because yeah, kind of force we you there, out of we there as extras. <laughs> you know, we were there as we were there as extra players um, in case somebody got hurt or if they needed something. So we we warmed up, we did the whole warm up and all that stuff. And then as they started, they were like, just keep the ball passing around, stay warm in case we need you, depending on what, what the, where the training session would evolve into. Um, so we just stayed on the side and watched. And at some point during the game. Uh, one of the goalkeepers got hurt, so my roommate actually got to jump in uh, into the inner inner squad game and play. But I just chilled on the sidelines and watched. And honestly, I was more than happy to chill on the sideline and watch because I was like, man, I do not want to be the guy that's bringing the level down because the, <laughs> it was so fast paced and and high level that I was like, Oof, this is going to be tough to jump into. But it was it was amazing just to even like warm up and and uh, train with them for a day. That, that's interesting to hear that there's another Armenian connection to Barcelona. Uh, other than being there being a couple of, of diasporan Armenians that have played for Barcelona, we have a, a young 
Eric Vardanyan, who currently plays in Sochi, Russia, he was in La Masia for five years. Oh, uh, wow. he, yeah, so he didn't I, he didn't end up really making the cut, went back to Punic, played in the Armenian League, and now he made his big move to, to Sochi, but he's still young. He's still 22, 23 years old. But it's cool to know that someone else, some other Armenian player, just randomly ended up kicking the ball around with some of the if not one of the best teams of all time. That's it's that's crazy to hear. The greatest, yeah. It was it was an incredible experience. Um, I remember Frank Reichard was the coach at the time as well, and it was uh, yeah, it was it was one of those moments that you're just pinching yourself and you're like, I can't believe this is real. Well, so speaking of one of Messi's earlier years. Yeah, I was I was trying to figure that out if Messi would have been part of that group, and I. Uh, I know Rijkaard is is the manager who gave Messi his start. I don't believe Messi was on the roster when they came, when they traveled to the U.S. at that time. But I believe it was probably the next season or maybe at the end of that season that uh, Messi got his shot too. So Crazy. You know, maybe if I got my chance in the training <laughs> session, maybe I would have been the Armenian Messi. But <laughs> well, we'll never know. We'll, we'll never, never know. know. Well, uh, speaking of pinching yourself, uh, because you probably feel like you're dreaming a lot, uh, you're an avid and vocal Arsenal supporter. My condolences. I know the league table is not looking too pretty. What is life like for Aleko as an Arsenal fan? I've, I've got the match on in the background right now. We just started against Burnley. So, um, you know what? It's It's not easy, but... I love it, man. I love Arsenal. I love everything they stand for. And, uh, you know, you see so many different supporters that gravitate to a club because they because they win, right? And they become fans. And for me, I became a fan because of their culture and then their philosophy. And so winning is cherry on top. But it's the club that I support and that I love and the way of doing things. For sure, over the last... Five years, I think they've gone away from how they historically um, built their squad, and it's and it's been tough to regain that identity. But I do love Arteta, and and I, I believe in the vision that he has and what he's doing. And hopefully, if we could offload some uh, big name, big money players that uh, are cancers, then uh, I think we have a brighter future ahead. We're not going to name names, obviously. Don't need to name names. But oh, well, okay. So you're 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 Armenian. You're an Arsenal supporter. Mukhitaryan famously made the move yeah. to Arsenal. How? What was? What are your thoughts on that? Like when that happened? I, I felt like it was like like my dream was to play for Arsenal someday, right? And to see another Armenian get that opportunity, it felt like my dream came true as well. Like it was secondhand dream. Yeah, man, it was so special to, to see that happen. Um, and he had some some great performances, but ultimately in the end, it was it was uh, it was tough to see him, you know, unhappy and, and struggling. And uh, yeah. but the fact that it even happened, that it even came to life, uh, I believe, gave hope uh, and and inspired so many Armenians, including myself. So it was it was an amazing thing to see. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Mkhitaryan, I believe he just needed to get out of England. He was not happy. I think uh, on a personal level, I believe Mourinho was the one to to ruin England for him. So he needed the change of air, right? 
Yeah, listen, every every player is different, and uh, obviously he has I'm quality. I'm not politically political correct, by the way. What's that? I'm not politically correct. No, that's that's good. That's good. Neither am I, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, okay. Because, uh, you know, you got to call it how it is. That's the only way you, people, you know, look at you as being genuine. So, Beautiful. Uh, yeah, I think I think he needed to get out. Listen, if we're being totally honest, he could have he could have uh, handled things better as well, you know. But the mental, like, people need to understand the mental state of a of a player is so important. So if they're not in the right place mentally, it's going to be tough for them to like have their heart into it and and give their all. And I think that's what you saw with with Mkhitaryan is, you know, even even when he did well, even when he was starting or coming off the bench. You could tell a part of him just was, was not, not happy. happy. So yeah, that's, but, that's unfortunately part of part of the game. And I'm at least happy that he was able to find himself uh, another opportunity where he was able to recapture it all. Yeah, but if you were number nine, you would be really happy. You would take that spot in an instant, huh? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. So we've been uh, we've been finding out more about who Aleko Skandarian is, like in real life, right? And uh, we wouldn't know a little more stories like the the ones you've been telling us, but one in particular, right? We, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, I was watching TV because I I like my my fellow Armenian compatriots on TV, you know. I often watch uh, I don't know random shows, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, and uh, so I'm I'm watching Kim. Entering this Armenian-themed restaurant, which I find out later on is famous in Los Angeles, right? And uh, she said she would ha- she had a date set up by I don't know whom uh, with an Armenian sportsman. She said he's good-looking, he's a good guy. I don't know what she said, right? And okay, who might this guy be? And then there you are. On TV, I remember having watched you several weeks earlier, prior that uh, that show was aired. Hey, that's Iskandarian. <laughs> what, what what happened there? Whew. It was a long time ago. I, I struggle to remember that that even happened. <laughs> but, um, yeah, right. But, uh, yeah, it's, listen, I'm... I'm a proud Armenian, and uh, you know I would love to settle with, with a fine Armenian woman someday. So of course I'm going to uh, explore those opportunities. And uh, applications yeah, when open. I was, okay. When, when I was approached uh, by Kim's mom, um, <laughs> she she basically tried to set me up with her daughter, and uh, I agree. So she's she's the one that pulls all the strings, man. She's she she definitely pulls all the strings. She called me out of the blue one day, um, introduced herself, said I'm I'm Chris Jenner, I'm Kim Kardashian's mother, and I would like like to get to know you a little bit because I, I want you to go on a date with my daughter. And I said, okay. So we had a couple conversations. Um, ended up speaking to I believe Courtney and Chloe as well that were on like speakerphone like just ask me a ton of questions and uh yeah they seemed super cool and uh so yeah later on that night kim called me and then we we went out so it was uh it was a cool experience <laughs> obviously very surreal 
not the type of date that I'm used to with uh, <laughs> cameras around the cameras and, like, and audience. Stuff. But uh, at the end of the day, it was it was really really cool to to meet her and um, get to know her on on a personal level and um, truly see that she's a, a really down to earth person with with a good heart. So a really really grateful for the opportunity and to meet her and have nothing good things to say about her. Yeah, she does seem like a genuine person. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. What did you talk about? <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's get into the details a little bit. Uh, you know, some some conversations, I think, are meant to be private, but oh, uh, just, just good conversation, man, just getting to know each other. And I was actually surprised how open she was because obviously – when I saw the cameras, I was like, okay, I need to make sure, like, I'm sitting yeah. straight, that I, you know, my my collar isn't messed up, and all this and that. And she was just really cool and chill and opening up, like, even talking about past relationships and, and um, her opinions on different things. And um, I made me feel really comfortable and, and at home. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I thought she was she was fantastic. She was great. She made me uh feel um less nervous about it and and uh i thought we had a great time like the date lasted like uh four hours or so like it was it was a long wow that's amazing so it it also helps that the food at carousel is pretty good yeah (laughs) the food the food was definitely good um, but, but Rafi's or carousel now this is i'm a a rafi's guy i'm a rafi's guy We know. We have, what does sure. what does the Sultani have that uh, makes it so special? Okay, look, you, you gotta explain <laughs> it to them because Armin's from Argentina and Chadens lives in Cyprus. They didn't, you know, not they're not like you and me. They don't get the the luxury of of Rafi's place. Listen, I, I could explain it, but nothing compares to tasting it. So yeah. you just have to go and try it. That's the best way. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good counsel. Yeah. Uh, so. Talking about TV, is there maybe a potential career in the making for TV, be it a random reality show, uh, your own uh, sports journalism analysis show? Do you feel uh, maybe it can happen someday? Joining us, maybe. You know, that was... Uh, <laughs> Who knows? Definitely, definitely not reality TV. I think I'm good with, with my reality TV uh I think I met my quota for reality TV appearances, but um, yeah, in terms of um, commentating or analysis, broadcasting, things like that, uh, I dabbled into it a little bit. I did a bunch of different things over the years, and uh, yeah, it's something that I actually enjoy. I would love to do on the side. It would have to be a bigger gig for it to be full-time, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's something that I enjoy doing even Recently, I was approached about, you know, starting a podcast or, or different things like that. So we'll see. We'll see. Uh, at some point, I think it'll fall into place. But I do enjoy, you know, sharing my 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 stories, my input, my opinions. And uh, mm-hmm. if there's an avenue to do so that'll be lucrative, then, you know, I'll consider it. Yeah, we can't actually we can't offer you much, but we can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, that last one was a, an actual listener's question from our listeners. Uh, but we have some questions of our own, and it's the lightning round for Aleko Skandarian. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm ready. 
All right. So we need you to answer these questions as fast as possible, top of your head, whatever comes to mind. Some of them are going to be a little longer than others, but we're going to try to just keep it bam, bam, bam flowing. All right. Question number one. Dream five-a-side team, including yourself. Go. Oof. Uh, Ronaldo, the real Ronaldo, R9. Oh, uh, snap. Let's go. Messi, Zidane. Um, and I'm in there, so I have only one more. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I need a, I need a defender. Exactly. I'll go with uh, Desai. Ooh. Oh, la française. Like it. I like it. <laughs> balanced. Well balanced. Very nice. Uh, so, best pitch, stadium, or overall game environment, ambiance, whatever you call it, uh, you ever felt in your career, and why? Um, I have two. Uh, one was uh, playing in Seattle against Real Madrid in a friendly where we had, I think, 72,000 nice. people there, like incredible, wow. incredible atmosphere. Wow. Um, and obviously I got to, I scored a goal in the match. So to score a goal against the greatest team I've played against, arguably the greatest team ever assembled, because that was those Galacticos that won the Champions League oh. um, a few months prior, um, was, was an incredible electric atmosphere. And then uh, I'll also say... Olympic qualifying in Mexico in Jalisco where they had 60,000 fans who were just berating us, throwing bags of piss, batteries, oh like you name it, just the oh, most the hostile might, environment nice. ever. So um, those are the two that really stick out for me. Uh, best coach you ever had? Uh, my dad personally and then Peter Novak as a professional. Scariest defender you ever had to face, ever? Um, I played, man, I played against both Cannavaro and Nesta, and they were both, wow. like, unbelievable, D different level. So okay. both of those guys. Best player you've ever met or played against? Um, it's tough because I, I played against both both Messi and, and uh, Ronaldo, um, but they were kind of like, I don't know, friendly matches. I don't know. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say Ronaldinho just because when I played yeah. against him at AC Milan, just the things that he's able to do are just – so, so they seem like a video game. So I'll say Ronaldinho. Joga <laughs> Bonito, <laughs> yeah. It's unparalleled. Uh, I'm the restaurant guy, so I'm going to ask you again about your favorite food, Aleko. Sotani, Armenian food, man. But yes. it's not just the Sotani kebab. It's the appetizer. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's, the, it's the salad. It's everything. The dessert, like all together. You're actually having like four meals with, in, in one. So, um, yeah, like Rafi's kebab in, in L.A., in Glendale. Uh, when I go there, I am a satisfied man. <laughs> favorite music band singer or genre Whew. uh man i've always been a hip-hop guy um but i listen to everything like other than like heavy heavy stuff um i don't know that i have like one favorite band or anything but i'll just say hip-hop hip okay. your favorite place in the world Hmm. 
Armenia. Ah, nice. Yeah, we, we, we would agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you got to meet anyone in world history, whether it's dead or alive, football or not, who would it be and why? If I got to meet anyone in history? Yeah, ooh. maybe hold a conversation. Search. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Uh, man, it's weird because I feel like I've seen a lot of people ask this question and I always love reading other people's answers and I've never thought of it myself. So I don't have a good There's answer. There's your chance. Um, anyone in history? Whew, I would say, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll use some recency bias and I'll say Diego Maradona. Ah, uh, Uh, your biggest accomplishment, it can be football-wise or anything personal. Uh, biggest accomplishment for me is is uh, just to make my parents proud. But um, I'll say going back to school to finish my degree was something that uh, I'm really, really proud of because, like I said, education is really important to me and my family. And you see so many pro athletes that once they – kind of choose athletics as their avenue. They, they kind of uh, push away from, from their other side of it. And I'm a huge believer, believer that you're, the whole person has to always develop, not, not just one side. Yeah. So to go back and finish my degree, especially from a prestigious university like University of Virginia, is something that I'm really proud of. That's brilliant. Congratulations from all of us. Thank you. It's beautiful. And last question. From and using all of the experience that you've had in your career, what would you say to any young Armenian that wants to make a career for themselves in football, whether that's a player, coach, analyst, anything? What piece, what one seminal piece of advice can you give a young Armenian? Uh, it's tough because it's multifaceted, but I'll say... You know, dedicate yourself to your craft. Don't be afraid to be uncomfortable. Um, and and uh, be proud of who you are to overcome any odds. Because um, at the end of the day, mental strength is, is everything. So with whatever you want to do, be it in, in sports or academics or any, any field, uh, I think there are just certain, certain building blocks that you need to instill within yourself to be able to overcome any sort of adversity because adversity is guaranteed. It's going to come one or the other um, because sometimes even success is adversity. So if you build yourself mentally to a place where you're able to handle all these things, um, that to me is the, is the key to success. But you have to, you have to fix yourself before you can, you can, uh, it's almost like fix yourself before you can express yourself. Right? So That's that to me is my one advice of so get yourself right to be able to handle anything that's thrown your way. And then the sky's the limit. Completely agree. Well, agree as well. It's amazing. And that concludes our interview with Aleko Eskandarian. Thank you very much for joining us today. We are very happy to have you. You are welcome on this podcast anytime. Feel free to join. We will we'll always we'll always welcome you with open arms. Thank Definitely. you for coming. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure. Thank you for all that you guys are doing as well. Uh, keep on making a name for yourself. And uh, 
amplifying all the right Armenian voices. So thank you for everything you guys are doing and uh, truly proud to be a guest. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you. If, if there's anything thank you want to so talk, much, talk about, promote social media handles where people can follow you, uh, maybe the charity auction that you're doing, go ahead, throw it out there. Yeah, that, that would be the one thing for sure that I would love to spread um, the word about. Obviously, we're all coming together as a diaspora to try to raise awareness or funds um, for the people in Armenia, in Artsakh, that are going through the, uh, this terrible tragedy right now. And uh, yeah, anything that we can do to help make their lives easier, especially during the holiday season, um, is really important and is a priority right now. So in thinking about ways that I can integrate the, the soccer community and, and uh, you know, reach out to some of my friends in my network to help. Uh, while, while brainstorming about that, I was able to put together a signed jersey auction. Jerseys are still coming in. I'm still sorting out details because I've never done a jersey auction before, but I'm hopeful in the coming days I will have uh, a website up and running for people to go in and bid. So in the meantime, Follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Adeco11, and uh, I'll have all sorts of details on there um, to bid on some amazing jerseys. Right now we got uh, international stars like Pele, Raul, Marco Senna, uh, obviously Armenian legend uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan. We have his jersey. We have U.S. men's national team and U.S. women's national team stars, Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, uh, Gio Reyna, Zach Steffen, uh, Tyler Adams. From the women's national team, Rose Lavelle, Megan Rapino, Carly Lloyd, Mal Pugh. So I'm truly overwhelmed by the by the memorabilia, by the items that we've been able to get. Um, hoping to raise as much money as possible. So please spread the word. It'll make a great holiday gift for someone that is a, a fan of any of these players. Um, and all 100% of the proceeds will go to a great cause. So hoping to get a lot of support on that and raise as much money as possible. Great. So everyone, you heard it. Go bid. Bid, bid. As soon as it comes out, throw all your money at that this holiday season. Well, that concludes this episode of Football Genshon. Thank you for joining us, Aleko. Thank you for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Thank you.